And so often, maybe you're going through something difficult and you're praying like, God, deliver me. Remove this. Do this. Help this. And it's just not coming. And you think, if God really loves me the way that he says that he loves me, then, then I'm not experiencing that kind of love. I know he's fond of me, but I don't know if he really agape loves me. Maybe he's forgotten me. Here we are, I'm suffering, and I don't understand. Know that your suffering is not just about you. That God in his goodness and in his redemptive nature even uses our suffering for the betterment and for the strengthening and for the glorifying of God and for the strengthening of the faith of others. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. John chapter 11 is where we are tonight. Let me turn there myself. at one of the last miracles in the Gospel of John, and really the, this last section of the Gospel of John that we've been in is kind of the last six months of Jesus' life. As we move past chapter 11 into chapter 12, and the end of the book is the last really 24 hours of the life of Jesus. And so time is really interesting within this book, and, um, and so the last half of this will actually move quite quickly. Uh, a lot faster than we've gone through the first half. But here we are at this, this second, kind of moving into the second half of the book. And so as we kind of go into that, know that this is the last 24 hours. This is the last miracle that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John um, that he records. It's the seventh of those, uh, of the miracles that he records for us. But um, it kind of moves rather quickly towards the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus So it says in verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he you love is sick. And when Jesus heard that he said, uh, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, last time we were together, we studied this last statement of Jesus in chapter 10, uh, that he is the good shepherd, Jesus calling himself the good shepherd. And we asked the question of that text and of that statement, what makes him the good shepherd? Why is he a good shepherd? And the answer follows as Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, because the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And we, so we, we saw the, the crucifixion or the sacrifice of Jesus looking at that's the fact that makes him the good shepherd. The main one, that's the main one we narrowed in on is the fact that the shepherd lays down his life for his own sheep, that Christ offered himself for our sins. And all of the narrative that we've been going through in chapters 9 and 10 all stem from a miracle that Jesus performed in chapter 9. And the man who was blind, that he was healed on the Sabbath day. Remember, that miracle kind of brings us to this place. And all the discourse and all the conversation, everything that's been happening is a result of this miracle that took place in chapter 9. There was a man who was born blind, was blind his whole life. Jesus meets him there. He tells him to go wash, right? He spits in the ground. He makes clay, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And he's healed, but he's healed on the Sabbath day. This creates a conversation that begins in Jesus' Uh, through that conversation, begins to explain 
who he is. Now we've been saying this since the beginning of the book that the miracle always makes way for the message. The miracle always makes way for the message. So what Jesus does is a platform for him to speak. And when he speaks, he's revealing spiritual truths about who he is, who God is, and helping to understand or us to understand this new covenant, this new way of relationship with God. And it's also helping us to understand the nature and the heart of God. And so the narrative that's been going on in the last few chapters is all of that, right? I am the door, meaning he's the only way of salvation. He says, I'm the good shepherd, meaning that he takes care of his sheep. He lays his life down for his sheep. All these pictures are, that Jesus is using and metaphors and all this stuff is all painting a picture of who God is to us and all with the intention that we might believe, right? That's the theme of the book. The simple gospel is written for us that we would believe in Jesus, that our faith would be emboldened, that we might know who he is. Now, that was the sixth miracle that Jesus performed in the gospel of John that he records for us. But tonight, we're now going to look at the seventh miracle and the final one that, that John records other than the resurrection of Jesus. But it's really a climactic miracle in the earthly ministry of Christ. Jesus has raised others from the dead, and we know that from other gospels, but Lazarus has been dead for four days. This is different than it's been in, in any other situation. Spoiler alert, I just ruined the whole story, right? Lazarus dies, it's four days, he's going to be raised from the, but hold on, it gets better. I know, it's getting better, okay? He's been dead for four days. His body began to stink and to decay at this point. And this means that the religious leaders couldn't deny or avoid it. Now, seven in numerology, who knows what the number seven means? Symbolizes. Completion, right? Completion. Now, it's interesting that the, the miracle of the seventh one that John records is that of resurrection or completion, wholeness, from death to life. Now, if you look at the eighth miracle that he records of Jesus raising from the grave, right? That is a miracle, in numerology, eight is what? The number of new beginnings. So you have completion and you have new beginning. You have this new covenant that's being ushered in, a new way of relating to God based upon faith and not sacrifice. This, this new life that's coming, it's this wonderful picture of the completion of, of not only our salvation in Christ, that he raises our spiritual bodies from the dead, not only physically someday to be taken place, but the death that comes by sin, he frees us from that, raises us to life, gives us newness of life. We are whole and complete and everything that we need is found in him. And I just basically told you everything I'm about to tell you. And, and so it might sound redundant, but bear with me. It's been a long day. So verse one, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany. The New Living Translation reads it like this. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his two sisters. Now, I've read this passage many times. I've read it in, in other translations. I'd like to say I can understand it in the Greek, but I don't. But as you read that translation, what I love about this translation is it reads like a kid writing a story, doesn't it? It reads like my, my eight-year-old son's science paper. Turtles are green. They live in the ocean, right? They're very matter of fact. And, and the reason I'm pointing this out 
is because as you read that, what you find in this verse is how ordinary this is. There was a guy named Lazarus, doesn't even give us his last name, doesn't even give us his occupation, doesn't give us his net worth, doesn't give us anything if, except the fact that he lived some kind of life with his two sisters in some little small town. And you think, how, to my, to my little brain here, as I read that, I think, how ordinary that is. How ordinary this is to read this text and think about this time and this place that this guy had no royalty, he had no connection to king, he had no connection to anyone. He was just a normal guy living in a little town with two unmarried sisters. Interesting, isn't it? And you're like, you're playing fast and loose with the word interesting. Now, this is interesting because if you read this for face value, you would go, well, who cares? Like, who cares? Like, if you've ever gone to Starbucks, you see the barista has a name tag, and you're like, why do you have a name tag? Because I don't care what your name is. Like, right? I'm not like, hey, it's you, Bart. I'm so glad it's you again. It's, it's, it's very superficial, that relationship, isn't it? You have coffee, and that's what I want, right? You have something that we need. I don't care what your name is. I don't care what your net worth is. If you, and we, we have these types of relationships all over everywhere we go. There are people that we see, we don't know their name, and we don't really care what their name is, do we? And when you read that text, and you read the, that, it's such an ordinary thing. There's a guy named Lazarus who lives in some town. And it's important because it's important to Jesus. This guy was valuable because he's valuable to Jesus. He's important because he's important to Jesus. And you see the value of people because Jesus values people. Life has value, not because of, of net worth or anything like that. It's because that person, no matter who they are, are created in the image of God, given the breath of life by God. And so that's why they matter. And not only are they alive by God's power and by God's sovereignty, but they live a life that God cares about. And that, that means my life as well. God cares about my little life. Sometimes, have you ever thought about how small you are? And now it's hard for me to imagine how small, because I'm large. But like if you've ever been to somewhere like Yosemite and you feel very small there at the base of the valley, right there at the bottom of El Capitan, you think, wow, I'm a small little thing in this giant, massive world. And yet God cares about me and, and his focus upon creation is me and his love is towards me and his affection is towards me. And he created this world that I might have a place to dwell, but he's also created a place that I could be with him for all of eternity. And he's made a way for me to get there. That's when our minds go from something that is, yes, I'm just ordinary, but we're all extremely important because God deems us valuable. God sees us as valuable. You read that verse and think, man, this is, this is just a little kid's paper. Turtles are green. Lazarus was dead. Just a simple, straight up answer. How ordinary. But yet it's extraordinary because God values him. This ordinary guy is going to experience one of the greatest miracles in all of history because Jesus steps into his life. And so any of us can identify, and we have to see ourselves in the person and in the character of Lazarus. As normal as you may think you are, 
as basic or whatever as you may think you are. Just I'm just an ordinary, I live in a small town, I live in whatever, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that might be your story, but God sees it as something so much greater. And, and in that, Lazarus is used in the greatest story of all time, in the story of Jesus. And so what Christ does is redeem something that's ordinary and makes it of something of such value. Isn't that fascinating? Just by where this guy lived, and who, he lived alone with his sisters. Just an ordinary guy working an ordinary job. God cares and loves that person. What verse 3 and 5 indicate as you read on, it says that he got sick. And therefore the sisters sent him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now that word love in, in the Greek is the word phileo. Now look what it says in verse five. Now Jesus loved, and that word is different here. It's a different word for loved. When they say that, they say to Jesus, the one whom you are fond of, the, ones that you, the one that you love as a friend is sick, and they send word to Jesus to come and heal him. What they say is this word phileo, that you're fond of him, and we know that you're fond of him, that you care for him. And Jesus says, now Jesus loved, agape Martha and her sister and Lazarus. There's a different word used. They underestimate just how much Jesus loved them. And it's so often our attitude as well. Like, I know God's fond of me, that he cares for me. No, 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 no. Do you know how much Jesus loves you and cares for you? You're like, I'm just some guy from some town. I'm just some girl from some town. No, 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 Jesus loves you and cares for you. You are valued by God. And it's easy in the world that we live in to lose our sense of worth in this world that values only what it can get from you. And they underestimate just how much Jesus loved them. It's very easy in the world that we live in that is always trying to get something from us. And so we're seen as like a number or a commodity or a way of, of commerce. And so someone's always trying to get something from us. It's very easy to lose our sense of value based upon what we can get from each other. And that's why we always come back to scripture and what scripture says that Jesus loves us because he loves us not because of anything that we offer or give to him, that he loved us before any of that, that he cares for us, even though we might not care so much for others or for ourselves, he cares for us. And this is fascinating to me. And we underestimate, I think in my own life, I underestimate just how much Jesus loves us, just how much he loves me. And a lot of times I can project that on other people. Can't? It's much easier to be like, yes, Jesus loves you. But when it comes down to me being alone by myself in my own thoughts, it is a lot of times very hard to believe that God loves me, isn't it? Deep within the soul, it is hard to believe that God loves me for, for no other reason other than the fact that that is who he is. God is love. And so he loves me. And so we underestimate 
The love of God in our own life, based upon maybe a circumstance, based upon an unanswered prayer, based upon whatever has happened to you in your life, you think, I know God loves people, but maybe not me as much. And we think, God, I know you're fond of me. And God says, no, I love you sacrificially. This, this word love in the, in the Greek, that word agape is a God-type love. It's an everlasting love. It's a love that is continuous. It doesn't go up. It doesn't go down. It is on a trajectory of constancy. Isn't that amazing? That's what he said. Now, and he reminds him of that because of what's going to take place. What's going to happen next is going to go, it's going to fly right in, in, in contradiction to that. Because when they say that our brother is sick, Jesus says this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, the Son of God may be glorified through it. And when he heard of it, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to to Judea again. So the Lord delays, Jesus delays going to Bethany. Now, Bethany and Bethage, where they, uh, the distance is about 20 miles. It's a little bit under just a day's journey. It would be an easy walk, but Jesus doesn't leave. And so the messenger on day one, the messenger is sent to Jesus to tell him to come. Lazarus dies that day. Okay, he doesn't make it through that day. On day two, the messenger then returns. Day three, Jesus then waits another day. Then he departs and arrives on this fourth day there in Bethany. And and the question then becomes, well, if Jesus then truly loves like he says that he did, why did he delay his coming? Like, why didn't he go? Why didn't he stop this? Why didn't he break this off? Why didn't he save them from feeling what they're about to feel, which is the death of a family member? I mean, is there anything more heartbreaking and gut-wrenching? And it just causes us to think that there is something wrong with this world, right? Death has a way of doing that for us. And so here we are, Jesus could save them from that, but he doesn't. And we can think, well, why... If Jesus truly loves like he says that he does, then why did he delay like he did? Look at the suffering then that takes place. But the Lord's delay is not his denial necessarily. The Lord's delay in his coming is not him saying no to their request. But we must not think that love and suffering are incompatible. Let me say that again. We cannot Think, and we must not think, that love and suffering are incompatible. Let me give you a couple of examples. Number one, childbirth. If suffering and love cannot coexist, then childbirth is a contradiction to all of that. Having watched my wife go through four pregnancies and four births, three of them without drugs, and without painkillers and all of that, watching her go through that kind of pain and at the end of it to love this little creature thing that she's holding and to have that kind of just deep affection and love that comes, that is a testament to the fact that suffering and love can be compatible. Also, if you look at the person of Jesus, the father loves the son but allowed him to drink the cup of suffering. You think if God is love, then why allow his son to go through this kind of suffering? We must not think 
that love and suffering are incompatible. And the reason being is that God is working in us and through us so others see God's deliverance. And when they see God's deliverance, they may glorify God. Look what Jesus says to his disciples. He says in verse 14, and Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead and I am glad for your sake. And you think that's messed up. Lazarus is dead and I'm stoked for you guys. <laughs> but if you read on that, I was not there that you may believe. And you think, wait a second. Jesus delays his coming, allows something to die and someone to die that's close to him. Why? So that his disciples would believe in him. God is working something out in this suffering and in this difficulty. God is working behind the scenes for another goal and another purpose. Not to just prolong Lazarus' life, but that life and faith might grow in his disciples and all those who would experience this miracle. And so often, maybe you're going through something difficult and you're praying like, God, deliver me. Remove this, do this, help this, and it's just not coming. And you think, if God really loves me the way that he says that he loves me, then, then I'm not experiencing that kind of love. I know he's fond of me, but I don't know if he really agape loves me. Maybe he's forgotten me. Here we are, I'm suffering, and I don't understand. Know that your suffering is not just about you. That God in his goodness... And in his redemptive nature, even uses our suffering for the betterment and for the strengthening and for the glorifying of God and for the strengthening of the faith of others. And it, it just, again, reminds us of what scripture tells us as the church, that our life is not our own. That I don't just live simply for myself. And as the body of Christ, that we are all connected to the head that is Jesus. And so therefore my life, my suffering, my difficulty can actually be a testimony of God's goodness, his grace, his power in your life. That it emboldens your, uh, emboldens your faith and strengthens your faith in God. Because someday you're going to go through something similar. And you're going to have a precedent to go, I knew and I saw God work at that time and in that place and in their life. And then therefore, why is God can do it in my life as well? And so suffering is not always just about us. And so it's hard, it's easy for me to say, like, suffering's not about you, suck it up. Right? But when you're in it, right, the only thing you can really see is yourself. Right? It, it's hard to look outside of it and, and to see past it and, and to look and say, like, I know God's working, but right now all I can see is this pain that I'm going through. And so I, I believe the encouragement of this, of this text is, listen, you're suffering, although you may be going through it, and God's delaying in his answer, but God is yet working in that situation for others around you that are watching it. And they're going to experience something similar at some point. Um, verse 11, if we go back, it says um, that death is like sleep for the believer. These things he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. 
Now they're confused by this and they're like, well, if he's sleeping, let him sleep. Like he's got the flu, like let him sleep it off. Don't go bug him. Like let him stick to his Pedialyte thing and get hydrated and get some rest and he'll be fine, right? That's their thought. When Jesus is saying like, no, he's sleeping. And, and the reason he's using this analogy is because for the believer in Christ, death is like sleep. You close your eyes and are gone in one place and you wake up in another. And one of the most Googled thing in the world is what happens to you when you die? For the believer, it's like sleep. You close your eyes here on this planet, in this earth, and you wake up in heaven, in the glory of God, in a perfect chiseled ab world. No, just kidding. Like you wake up in this place of glory and peace. And, and, and that's what Jesus is saying. For the, for the believer in Jesus, death is like sleep. Although it be in, peth, in death, there may be pain, but it's like sleep. Because you're not, you don't cease to exist. You exist somewhere else. There's life after death. It's one of the most Googled things. It's what people want to know. What happens to you when you die? Do you see, like those people that say they have out of these near-death experiences and I went to heaven and, and it was so crazy and like, well, but I came back and here I am, now buy my book so you can find out what happened to me. And you're like, uh, I don't know. Like, is it, can you just tell me? Like, do I really have to buy the book? And like, oh yeah, buy the book. But it's like, for the believer, here's what we do know. Death was our enemy. Death was our enemy. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, it says, For if the dead are not raised, not, every, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection, then what is this life? He's making the point that there is life after this one. That there's a, a place that we're headed to. That Christ defeated ultimately death by his death upon the cross. And in, if you continue on in that, that passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians 15, it says, but Jesus Christ has defeated death finally and permanently. So for the believer, death, although it may be frightening in that moment, or when you know it's coming, or something like that, if you are scared of dying and things like that, which is a scary thought. As I'm getting on a plane, my wife's like, you don't have life insurance. You can't die. And I'm like, don't worry. <laughs> I won't. Like, I'll try my best, you know, to stay alive. Um, that's just a weird thing to, like, think about and, like, we have kids, so we have to like make a will and like things like that. You're like, this is weird. It's a weird thing to think about. But for every person who is alive, death is a reality. But to the believer, death is not the finality of life. We have life after this. This is a short stint in a much longer eternal existence with God. And so death is not to be feared in the sense that What's going to happen to me? If you hope in Christ and your faith is in Jesus, then your life begins as we go to sleep on this earth and wake up in glory. So it's something that I don't necessarily love to think about and like, 
you know, how am I going to die? It's not really something I'm dwelling on or, you know, something we think about often. But it is a reality. But the, the glorious thing about this text is that Christ has defeated it. And therefore, it's not to be feared. It's conquered. It's, it's something that we have no longer, um, it's no longer hanging over us. Um, verse 14 says, Then Jesus said to, to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes. No, it's not there. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews were joined the women around Martha and Mary in comfort um, to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. And now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to, you, said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Martha and Mary say the same thing. They both say this to the Lord. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It says it here in verse 21. It also says it in verse 32. Both sisters say the same thing to Jesus, which means they had already been saying it for about three days. Right? To each other. Where was he? If the Lord had been here, our brother would not have died. Something that maybe they go back and forth talking about. If this had just, if this had just happened, this never, we would not be going through this right now. I don't understand, right? I don't understand. And now here's Martha having the opportunity to ask Jesus in person. And she hears that he's coming and he run, she runs out to meet him. And she says to him, if you had been here, Right? If you had just been here, like when we sent, like my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Now, theologically, she understands that there will be a resurrection at some point, at the last day, when it's talking about that all will rise from the dead, right? The graves will be emptied on that last great day of judgment. Right? All the graves will be emptied out. Everyone will stand before God. He's talking, yes, we understand there will be a resurrection. I know theologically that this will take place, but that does not help me right now. Right? She's thinking future tense. Like, that's great. Stoked for that day, but <laughs> like right now, it's difficult to be going through this right now. And if you'd been here, it's your fault, right? It was interesting as she blames Jesus for not being here in the death of her brother, but why did death occur in the first place? Man's sin. So often we love to blame God for things that are our fault. We get ourselves into difficult things and stupid decisions, and we go, God, if you had been here, this would not have happened, right? What does God say? You chose to do that, free will child of mine, right? You have freedom. Like my son does this to me all the time. Dad, where's my, where are my blah? Or whatever, fill in the blank. Like where is my key? Like I don't know, where did you put it? <sighs> well, if you had just, and I'm like, ah. Whose stuff is it? It's mine. Exactly. It's your stuff. 
you should know where it is. And I just walk away. No, I help him find it. But it is so often we love to blame someone else. And God's a great target, isn't he? Because he can take it. God, it's your fault. It's me. And he's like, who got you in this situation in the first place? You did. But God in his grace is a deliverer, isn't he? God in his grace is a deliverer and can bring us out of even the greatest mess that we have made. But she says to him, if, you're, if my brother, I know the resurrection's coming. Theologically, I understand. And Jesus said to her and brings her into the present, right? Her friends are saying, if Jesus had been here, they're looking at the past and saying, if we had if just made a decision here or if we had changed something here and she's looking into the future and saying, I know someday this will make sense. And Jesus brings her into the present. And he says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. Right now, you're going to see it. He takes theology from a book and he puts it into a person. It's amazing. The Jews believed that the soul or the spirit of the person would hang around the body for three days. So after three days, all hope was lost, right? He says, your brother will live again. She says, I know, but not now. All hope is lost. It's four days. Like it's over. Like we're done here. Could have walked a little faster, maybe. And you can see that in her response. It's not going to happen today. It's been, it's been four days. It's all over. And Jesus' response, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus doesn't deny that there is a future resurrection. The resurrection of the human body is a staple for the Orthodox Jewish faith. But in his great I am statement, Jesus transforms the doctrine of the resurrection. By, his reaching, uh, by, his, by this miracle of his own, res, own resurrection... Jesus clearly taught the resurrection of the human body. He has declared one for all that death is real, that there is a life after death, and that the body will one day be raised by the power of God. But he takes it from a book and he puts it into a person and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. That in Christ, we have all we need in life, in death, in time, and in eternity. He takes it from what she knows about God and he says, you're looking at the answer in front of you, presently. So it's so hard sometimes to take what we know of God and we know of his character and we have good theology and to apply it right now, isn't it? We know that God is all powerful, but you're like, but we live in this time and in this day and age, and it is wild out there. Like in the days of Noah, was God like, man, this is just crazy. I don't know what to do. Like, dude, you know what I'll do? I'll just flood everything. You know what I mean? It's not like he, God's not surprised by the wickedness of men. Do you know that? Do you know that God's not like, oh my goodness. That's shocking. Like some old church lady who's like, oh, how dare you use that word or whatever. You know, like, <laughs> that's not God's personality. He's like shocked by the wickedness of men. Do you know that Jesus experienced the full weight of sin upon himself and the wrath of God 
poured out upon all of the wickedness, all of the evil, all of that. He experienced it. And then the wrath of God poured out on him. He's not surprised. And so often we can take what we know of God and remove it from this time and in this age. And yet, yeah, someday God's going to move powerfully. Someday he's going to stand upon, and we know theologically the book of Revelation, and I have a great crystal, whatever. You have some great theology, but what is God doing right now in your life presently, and you're experiencing the power of God now? Not someday when you're like, when I'm 40, then I'm going to know some stuff about God, right? I used to think at 30, I would know everything. Like I would just magically know what APR is and like FHA loans and like all this stuff. I have no idea what any of that means. I had a meeting today where someone's like, yeah, interest levels, 2.5%, used to be six. And I'm like, oh, dude, you could just be saying Chinese words. I don't know what you're talking, mong, bang, bang, bang. Cool, yeah, all right. It's exciting, I love stocks. I know it, I know what all of that means. I don't know what any of that means. So if you're thinking like, someday I'm going to know a lot of stuff. Like, do you realize that God wants to move right now in your life, the time that you're in, the age that you are, the job that you're in, the school that you're in, whatever you're doing, God wants to do something in your life now. Don't put it off to some future tense thing. Like when I'm calmed down, then God will do something and then I'll, you know, then I'll get it right or whatever. So often we put theology into the future, or put it into something that we'll experience, you know, whatever, someday, but instead of making it a present reality, now. Just got off on a super weird tangent. And I appreciate you guys being here through it. And I have a microphone, there's not a whole lot you can do, so bear with me. <laughs> this story does end. Um, she said to him, after he asked her, do you believe this? He says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is to come into this world. I love the patience of Jesus with Martha. If you move now down into verse 32, it says, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, this is a great text for his humanity. As his friend dies, someone that he cared about, that he knew, it says that a groaning came in his spirit. Now, I don't know what that means, other than it means that he groaned in his spirit. There was like a, like there's a real reality of death that he experienced right here, and it hurt. It hurt him. And in this wept. Now, I knew you had that one memorized, right? Jesus wept. And we write it, you ever go to a wedding and someone has the family Bible out? Like, John eleven thirty five. 35. It's the only one I know by heart or whatever. Jesus wept or whatever. But the point of it is, is that Jesus wept over the fact that death had affected humanity because of sin. Remember when he came into Jerusalem and he wept over Jerusalem, he wept over Israel. And he said, if you had only known, he felt deeply that kind of pain emotional pain, and he wept over it. This is a great text for his humanity, that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man have opened the eyes of the blind? 
also have kept this man from the end. Like he could, he could heal the blind. Why couldn't he have been here on time and like kept this guy from dying? You get the sense of the whole, all hope is lost. Like this is over. If only he had been here sooner. We just don't understand what God's doing. It says, then Jesus again groaned in himself and he came to the tomb and it was a cave and a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead. Now, notice he doesn't have a name anymore. You don't hear Lazarus' name until Jesus speaks it. It says, the one who was dead, meaning, Judd agrees, the one who was dead, meaning that he is gone. No more identification as a human being. He has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that you, you would believe and you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Do you see what Jesus is doing? Do you notice a, a, a word that keeps coming up? It is the word believe, believe, believe. What is Jesus doing? He wants us to have faith in him. He wants us to be a people of faith. Believe that God is powerful. Believe that God can do what he says that he can do. Then they took away the stone and says, now when they had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Now he calls him by name because if he had just come forth, every dead person would have come out alive. Just like all of these things. So he says, Lazarus, specifically, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. It's so easy to like read it and feel like we're looking at a flannel graph of it as a kid. But we have to be adults about this and realize what just happened. A decaying dead body just became alive again. And what you find is a man bound in grave clothes, walking out of a who had ceased to exist. This is amazing. No one else can do this. No one with simply a word, recreate and reanimate a man by his very word and his very breath. This is God. And so when he calls him forth, again, we have to see ourselves in the person of Lazarus. The Bible says that we are dead in sin and trespasses. And when we come to Christ by faith, we are made alive again, brought forth, back to life. Our soul is regenerated. We are, the, the grip of sin is loosened upon us. Those dead things that once encompassed us, all of the evidence of death around us in Jesus, we are set free. And lastly, in John chapter 12, the next time you see Lazarus, you see him sitting at a table eating with Jesus. Alive. The Bible tells us that we are free from the power of sin in our lives and we are then seated with Christ in the heavenlies. 
Colossians chapter three, verse one. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians chapter two, verse six. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus. This is what God has done for us. Brought us back to life. Given us life and that more abundantly. He's freed us from the power of sin and he has placed to eat at his banqueting table forever. This is what God has done. And if it's not evidence of his love yet, like just wait. As we get to the end of the book, you're gonna see it. If you're not convinced yet that God loves you, just keep coming. I'll get there. God loves you. This is what he's done for us. It's an amazing story, but may it not be just some story that we talk about in past tense of like, yeah, that's cool that Jesus did that that one time. But do you know that Jesus does this on a regular basis for humanity? Every time that we see a person give their life to Christ, this is what happens in a spiritual way. There is life, there is the freedom from the has changed. That's a miracle. That's a wonderful miracle. And so he's still raising the dead today. And uh, God is still powerful right now. I don't know about you guys. Like I grew up at, at Calvary Coast Mesa. And woo woo. Yeah, a long time ago. Like I went kindergarten through 12th grade. And so for like ever, forever, all I heard about was like, God moved this one time. <laughs> like way back in the 60s. Like right. And I'm very thankful that's my heritage, right? My parents got saved as a result of that movement. And um, my mom and dad got saved and it's just, a, it's really cool. My dad was a heathen dog and um, got a job on a, lug, a furniture truck and was getting a new partner that day. And he was just miserable. And he says, God, if you're real, send someone to tell me about you. And the guy who got in his truck sat down and he put in like a tape and was like, Hey man, do you know Jesus? And my big, large father just wept and cried. And he's like, this is, you're supposed to be here. Anyway, God saved. They went to Calvary Chapel. It was the first time they ever went to church. He took my mom to church. And for two years, told my mom that she was going to hell if she didn't know Jesus. It's the worst witnessing, worst thing ever. Right? But God moved powerfully in their life. My mom eventually got saved, you know, because of the grace of God. Got saved. And I'm so thankful for that heritage. I'm so thankful that God moved back in the 60s. Do you realize that we're here because of that movement, right? That great men and great women branched out and moved out and began to preach the gospel in different places. Like that, that is an effect, a ripple effect of that movement. Now, all of that to say, would you like to see one of those movements happen? Were those who are strung out on heroin and LSD and jacked up and doing all sorts of just heinous things to see them miraculously saved now? Do you want to see something like that? I think all of us deep down, we're like, yeah, I'd love to see that. Do you know that God is the same God that was back in the 60s and the same Holy Spirit that was back in the 60s that moved powerfully among a generation that was godless is the same powerful God that raised Lazarus from the dead and can do it now. What's it gonna take? It's gonna take willing servants to be the vessels of God, but also 
praying that the Spirit of God would fall. Just work mightily. I'm stoked that we have that heritage, and that's great. It's great. I just don't want to hear about it anymore. <laughs> I just want to, I want to see one. I want to see one. And I think all of us do deep down inside because we weren't there. We're like, that's a great story. Cool, Grandpa. I want to see one. May we be those that believe in the power of God and the power of the gospel and the power of his word.